want you to hit me as hard as you can. As a rising filmmaker with a smash debut, there's always that fear of the sophomore slump. Even those with some of the finest debuts on record, Dennis Hopper, George Romero, Richard Kelly, have all suffered it. The pressure was on for Quentin Tarantino after Reservoir Dogs, a Sundance sensation that launched the cinema of cool and helped usher in a new era of indie movies. So what did QT accomplish with his sophomore effort? Uh, nothing too over the top, just writing and directing one of the most groundbreaking independent films in movie history, changing the industry perception on low-budget movies, and solidifying himself as one of the most unique voices in the field. So light up a red apple, unwrap a big kahuna burger, and bring out the gimp as we find out what the f*** happened to this movie. Considering Tarantino's encyclopedic knowledge of pop culture, it's absolutely no surprise that Pulp Fiction, like most of the rest of his filmography, is rooted in a work that predated it. For what could become his second feature, QT took inspiration from Mario Bava's anthology horror Black Sabbath, in addition to Western detective adventure publication Black Mask, the style of which, a pulp magazine, lent the film's title. He would split the writing, which began in the early 90s, with fellow video archives buddy Roger Avery. Tarantino's portion would become Reservoir Dogs, while Avery's, titled Pandemonium Reigns, ended up as the backbone of Butch's sequence later on in Pulp. The entire project would soon get shelved so QT could turn his crime heist section into his debut and casually change the face of the independent film movement. No big deal. Thanks for watching Joe Blow Videos. If you enjoy our shows, please like and subscribe, and click the bell to be notified when new videos go live. Now, back to the show. Revisiting the project after the success of Reservoir Dogs, QT decided to ditch the anthology idea altogether, but still have individual, yet intersecting storylines. The script would offer a collection of twists on classics. The old chestnuts, as QT put it. You know the ones. The low-level criminal who has to look after his boss's wife, the boxer who's forced to throw a fight, and the real classic, the bondage-clad sex slave kept in a pawn shop basement. And so Tarantino headed off to Amsterdam, where we're sure nothing was there to distract him whatsoever. Entirely written by hand for around three months, it was later given to a typist who called Tarantino a mad genius but also a functional illiterate, Pulp Fiction was finished in January 1993, with the final draft complete in May of that year. Producer Lawrence Bender, who worked with Tarantino on Dogs, made ties with Jersey Films and subsequently Miramax. Some other studios had circled the project, namely TriStar, who offered Tarantino $900,000 during his post-Dogs celebrity, but later bailed because Pulp Fiction was deemed, quote, too demented obviously missing the themes of redemption throughout the story. What happened here was a miracle, and I want you to f acknowledge it. Keep in mind that TriStar also produced Weekend at Bernie's 2, quite demented in its own right. Once Harvey Weinstein and Miramax, who had just been acquired by Disney, came on board, Pulp Fiction nabbed an $8.5 million budget, with a sizable $150,000 of that going to the Jackrabbit Slim set alone. Tarantino also negotiated for final cut and cast approval. Showing their solidarity to the director and his project, much of the cast would be taking pay cuts and or getting box office points in lieu of their usual big paydays. Hitman and McDonald's aficionado Vincent Vega would be played by John Travolta. 
then far removed from his once acclaimed career of Saturday Night Fever, Urban Cowboy, and Blowout. The role was intended for Michael Madsen, who turned it down to be in Wyatt Earp, while Miramax supposedly wanted Daniel Day-Lewis, perhaps fearing the method actor would actually start shooting heroin and Marvin in the face. Tarantino fought for John Travolta instead, meeting with him to play board games of his classic shows and movies. According to Tarantino's own casting wish list, Michael Keaton was a, quote, strong possibility. They would later collaborate on Jackie Brown. The role of Vince's partner, the mushroom cloud laying motherfucker Jules Winfield, went to Samuel L. Jackson, but not without some snags. It was written for Lawrence Fishburne, who turned it down due to how much heroin use was depicted in the script. Jackson, believing the role was actually written for him, assumed he had the role. Still, he was nearly beat out by a relative unknown, later cast as Paul, but that's between y'all. So he had to fight for it. Eddie Murphy was also on the short list. Originally cast to be on top of Jackson's head was an afro, but a misunderstanding in the wardrobe department led to a now iconic Jerry curl. Numerous names circled Mia Wallace, wife of crime boss Marcellus Wallace including Isabella Rossellini, Michelle Pfeiffer, and future Fox Force 5 member Daryl Hannah. Maybe their feet weren't pretty enough? Miramax supposedly pushed for Holly Hunter, fresh off the piano, and Meg Ryan, then the reigning queen of rom-coms. It would go to Uma Thurman in her debut as Tarantino's muse. Playing double-crossing motorcycle, a chopper, stealing boxer Butch Coolidge would be Bruce Willis, who got the role after Matt Dillon took too long to say yes. The casting of Willis, who actually wanted to play Vincent Vega, made the project legit, according to Tarantino. The rest of the cast would be a menagerie of icons, familiar faces, and Reservoir Dogs alone. There's Bing Rains as Marcellus Wallace, who absolutely does not look like a bitch, and neither does Sid Haig, who turned down the role, Christopher Walken in what essentially amounts to a cameo, Reservoir Dogs' own Mr. White, Harvey Keitel, as Winston Wolfe, he solves problems, in what is surprisingly his last on-screen Tarantino appearance to date. He voice cameoed in Inglorious Bastards. Reservoir Dogs' Mr. Orange, Tim Roth, as low-level Robert Pumpkin, teaming with Amanda Plummer's Honey Bunny. And there's also one more Reservoir Dogs appearance. Steve Buscemi as a waiter dressed as Buddy Holly. Eric Stoltz is drug dealer Lance, John Cusack was the first choice, and wife Jody is Rosanna Arquette. Pam Greer was considered, but Tarantino didn't find it believable that any man could get away with yelling at her. We found this to be fact when she played Jackie Brown next. Filming began in September 1993 and lasted 51 days, with Tarantino bringing along a number of Reservoir Dogs crew members for the ride. The final day consisted of Christopher Walken's immediately quotable watch monologue. Five long years he wore this watch. Up his When production wrapped in November and editing commenced soon after, Tarantino and company headed to the 1994 Cannes Film Festival. Dogs had screened at a competition there two years prior, but this time Pulp Fiction was competing for the Palme d'Or, the festival's, and arguably cinema's, highest honor. After much anticipation, jury president Clint Eastwood read the winner, which had up to that point not won a single award. Pulp Fiction. The applause was near unanimous, except for one French spectator, who heckled the director, who in turn flipped her off. Pulp Fiction opened stateside on October 14, 1994, 
it would debut at number one at the box office, nudging the specialist out of the top spot, and easily besting fellow newcomers Wes Craven's New Nightmare, Little Giants, and Exit to Eden, just to name a few movies you haven't thought of in a long time. It would go on to gross $108 million domestically and $213 million worldwide, making it not just the third biggest R-rated movie of 1994 after True Lies and Speed, but the highest grossing indie movie ever up to that point. Okay. <laughs> Nearly every aspect of the film was garnering attention, from the content and structure to the box office and soundtrack a Billboard Top 20 album, despite Neil Diamond's refusal to partake. Hence, Urge Overkill's cover of Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon. Despite a record-breaking box office and nearly universal critical acclaim, more on those later, Pulp was hit with immediate controversies. One concerned the language, not the 265 F-bombs, but the multiple N-words uttered 18 times, a few by Tarantino's own character, Jimmy. This would be a recurring gripe of Tarantino's films, with Jackie Brown and the Hateful Eight clocking in nearly 80 usages total, while Django Unchained had well over 100. There too were issues with the drug use depicted on the screen. Then US President hopeful Bob Dole called it the quote, romance of heroin, while then Disney chairman Jeffrey Katzenberg urged Weinstein to get QT to go quote, easy on the heroin scene, meaning Mia's accidental overdose complete with mushroom soup spittle. But the real takeaway behind the scenes stories revolving around this scene have less to do with heroin than movie magic and perfectly timed medical emergencies. The jabbing of adrenaline into Mia's chest was actually shot backwards, a factoid known to nearly every fan at this point. And during a screening at the New York Film Festival, one man passed out during the scene. Even if he was a diabetic, it sure makes for great press. Controversy over Pulp Fiction remains even to this day. And yes, it involves NFTs, because of course it does. In a bit of alphabet soup, QT wanted to sell NFTs of uncut scenes and handwritten scripts. But Miramax is, as of publication of this video, suing, claiming Tarantino gave up most of his rights in the 90s. There was some behind the scenes controversy as well. When Pulp Fiction was finally unleashed in the cinemas, the sole writing credit went to Quentin Tarantino. Where was Roger Avery, who undoubtedly served an integral part in the script's conception? Tarantino more or less muscled Avery so the credits could read written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. Avery only took a story by credit and $25,000, clearly aware that Tarantino would be the film's promotional mascot. Tarantino's blanket defense of this situation? Quote, he didn't write the script. Pulp did extremely well around awards season, nabbing numerous major accolades. Seven Oscar nominations, six Golden Globe nods, nine at the BAFTAs, five at the Independent Spirit Awards, and many more. Its sole win at both the Oscars and the Globes was for the screenplay, again a topic of indiscrepancy. Although both Tarantino and Avery won the Oscar, only Tarantino was nominated at the Globes. In what could be construed as a direct slight, Tarantino didn't even thank his partner Avery during his speech. But it's clear that the duo have settled most of their issues, with Avery saying QT is, quote, like a brother. Cool. The two even have a planned podcast, the Video Archives podcast. And while Forrest Gump would take home most of the major top prizes that year, Pulp Fiction would prove to have far better legs than Gump. No pun intended. 
The film changed the Hollywood game entirely, with Entertainment Weekly noting it marked, quote, nothing less than the reinvention of mainstream American cinema. It gave indies more street cred, marking a rebrand for industry commercialization. While smaller movies had been nominated for Best Picture before, a look at some indies in the immediate years after shows the impact. 1995's Il Postino had just a $3 million budget. 1996's Shine had a $6 million budget, while 97's The Full Monty just $3.5 million. It also continued Miramax's then unprecedented run of Best Picture nominations. Thanks to Pulp, it was cool for an indie flick to make it to the red carpet. And really, one can make a direct link from Pulp Fiction to at least the mid-2000s, when fellow Independent Spirit Award winners like Lawson Translation, Sideways, and Brokeback Mountain were raking in Oscar nominations. Today, it's not uncommon to have multiple on the ballot. Pulp Fiction spawned countless rip-offs, homages, and spoofs. IMDb's referenced in and spoofed in pages cite nearly 1,300 movies, TV shows, video games, and yes, porn parodies, a true gauge of success. Notable nods range from things to do in Denver when you're dead and the early Guy Ritchie filmography to Space Jam and Ants. But there was a deluge, and far too many filmmakers were trying to be QT on adrenaline, with faux hip characters spitting out pop culture references because they thought that's now how they all had to talk. Tarantino's personal favorite of the ripoffs was CM Talkington's Love and a 45. Of course, Tarantino steals from that pays homage to plenty of his own. There's not just the Black Sabbath inspiration, but the glowing briefcase from Kiss Me Deadly, the dance sequence from Band of Outsiders, the Mexican standoff from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and a barrage of others that we mere casual moviegoers could never pick up on. Keen eyes have even connected various tools in the pawn shop to movies like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Notably, Pulp Fiction marked a much-deserved second wind of John Travolta's career, which reportedly Harvey Weinstein went around taking credit for despite not wanting to cast him in the first place. At the time, Travolta was locked in a cycle of talking baby movies. Come to think of it, so was Bruce Willis. Whoa! After, he exploded yet again, starring in the terrific Get Shorty, for which he won his only Golden Globe to date, accessible box office smashes like Michael and Phenomenon, and actioners like Broken Arrow and Face Off, not to mention a completely Oscar-worthy turn in primary colors. There would, unfortunately, be no Vega Brothers prequel. Samuel L. Jackson, too, got a major boost, having previously been in scene-stealing roles for the likes of Spike Lee, while Uma Thurman was suddenly bankable, but didn't fully try to take advantage of this until Batman and Robin. In the years that followed, the Writers Guild of America ranked the screenplay as the 16th greatest ever, while They Shoot Pictures, Don't They?, has consistently placed the film in the top 75 of their 1,000 greatest films list. In 2013, the National Film Registry selected it for preservation. And sorry to break your concentration, but we should take this opportunity to look into what exactly is in that MacGuffin briefcase. While the actual contents was a light bulb and two batteries, the narrative contents are ripe for fan theories. That it's Marcellus Wallace's soul, hence the 666 combination and the band-aid on the back of his neck, or the jewels from Reservoir Dogs, or even the Best Picture Oscar that Pulp Fiction should have won. But we here at Joe Blow did a little investigating and found out the real answer for you. The contents of the briefcase is... 